Welcome back to the Max Out Show, which Dan joined by the two-time world champion and Olympic silver medalist in rowing, Annie Vernon. After incredibly successful 10 years, Annie has taken her interest in peak performance and studied many of the world's greatest athletes for a phenomenal book, Mind Games, trying to understand what sets them apart from the rest of the field. And that's exactly what we'll talk about today. The psychology of an elite athlete and how to bring that to every single area of your life. So Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And so one idea or construct that really struck me was this inherent competitiveness to life that can both express our best and the worst in us. So can you yeah. share with us a little bit why, you know, competitive is not competitiveness. It's such an inherent aspect of life. Well, I mean, to, to, to sound like I'm quoting a cliche, but we are called the human race. And so much of just the way that society is structured, you know, forgetting about sport for a second, but everything from education to, you know, the job market to careers to salaries, you know, it's all a competition. You're always competing against someone else or competing against yourself to, to you know, to get to the next step. Um, and I think the thing about competition is it... Of, of course, it brings out the best in us. You, you, you can't say that it doesn't. Um, I'm sure all of us have had a really stressful experience, you know, perhaps a job interview that we're really worried about. And then we come out and we say, wow, I, I performed better than I could ever have imagined. Well, it was the stress and the pressure of that moment of competition that brought that out of you. Um, I mean, to jump into sport again, people don't set world records in training. They set world records in Olympic finals. Yeah. You know, and that's, <laughs> that's the reality of it. I mean, Usain Bolt isn't going to run 9.58 seconds on a, you know, a rainy Thursday morning in January. He's going to run that at the World Championship final or the Olympic final. So, of course, competition brings out the best in us um, and we need it to, to spur us on. But at the same time, it, competition has a dark side. Um, you know, if you feel like you're always competing, if you feel like you're, you're always under the microscope and always being judged, either against other people or just against a, a, a previous or, a, or an idealized version of yourself, that is destructive and that can break you down. And I think the answer is, like so much in life, is there's a balance there somewhere. And what we need is competition in moderation. So it is there and it does, you know, we do have those big moments where everything's expected of us, but it doesn't pervade into everyday life. And there are moments and there is times when we can just fail and it's okay and we can be not very good and it doesn't matter and we feel like we can make mistakes and, and roll the dice and risk it because there's no consequences so there has to be i think some competition but it cannot take over your life yeah for sure and this is great story in your book about this dark side of of chrissy wellington right who won like set the the iron man world record in 2011 and then when she called a yeah. coach, she's like, well, but my, my bike ride wasn't that great, right? Like you just yeah. became like, we're like the best of all time, right? Exactly. I think the, the way that Dave Scott, her coach, phrased it is that, um, you know, there's no such thing as perfection. But if you win the World Championships and you, sorry, you don't win the World Championships, that was at a different event. But if you set a new world record, there's a pretty much as close to perfect as you're going to get. Yeah. And I think, sure. yeah, as an athlete, it's tempting to always think that's fine, but I can do better. I can do better. Mm. And you know what? There's moments when you just need to give yourself a break and say, yeah, I could do better, but I did pretty damn well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, it ties into this aspect of like mental health and happiness and, and relation to, to sports, right? Because we, we have these sure. like inevitable uh, like ups and downs, right? And the ups are amazing and the downs are even more devastating. 
So what have you learned really about handling sort of those really high, like highs and the low lows? Well, I think sport is probably the, um, the most extreme example of that. And certainly when I was a, a young athlete starting out my own career, one of my friends said to me, she said, in, in, in elite sport, the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And I guess that is the thing about elite sport that I now, and I, I've been retired for, for eight years, I now, I, I miss the most and I don't miss at all. <laughs> it's probably the bit that sometimes I think, God, I wish I was living my life in those extremes again. And then there's other days I think, I'm so glad I'm not living in those extremes anymore. <laughs> you know, the highs are good and the, the lows are not so good, but that's so much better than that roller coaster of emotion that you go through in sport. And I think, and I don't really think I have a, the right answer to this other than, you know, if, if, if researching mind games taught me anything, it's that people find out their own way of dealing with that. You know, people find out their own way of coping with those, you know, those massive highs and that, that feeling that you stood on top of the mountain, where else is there to climb to? And also those terrible lows when everything is snatched away from you and, you know, you mess up and, and suddenly that's it, another four years before you can put it right, if at all. So I think everybody, you know, goes through their own process of, understanding that, that both those sides of elite sport exist and some of them are nice some of them are not very nice mm. but that's kind of how the cookie crumbles and you, you have to be able to deal with those extremes and you learn as a human how to deal with them yeah for sure you know a couple of weeks ago i had tony jeffries on the show um fellow great britain uh, olympic medalist in boxing right and yeah. he was sharing the story of how like when he won that like olympic bronze medal it was like the greatest experience of his life, right? He said like it was, yeah. you know, more like fulfilling, more exciting than like, you know, getting married and <laughs> you know, all that stuff. He was like, this is literally let's, the let's high point wife. of life. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't tell it to her. But <laughs> no, it's just, but it's just funny, right? Because like it, it speaks to this, like these intense emotions that, mm. that you experience when you're like at the top of the field, right? And then, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, I think, um, you know when you when you've climbed to the top of the mountain what else is there to do where else is there to go and yeah some people really struggle with life after huge success in the same way some people really struggle with life after terrible lows um and i think it, it you know it almost comes down to you have to remember that sport isn't real sport is is something that you do it doesn't define who you are and there is a life after sport that will go on for decades and decades yeah. um i mean i've <coughs> I've been retired now for the same amount of time that I've been an athlete but it felt like my athletic career lasted for much much longer than my, my yeah. post-athletic career has done because it was so intense and it was so extreme and it was you know so clearly um, etched in my memory every single moment so I think you, yeah. you can't ex you, you, you can't pretend that sport at the, the elite level doesn't affect you it really does affect you um, but it's not real. It's a bubble. You step into it and you step out again. And it's life on the outside that you need to, you know, need to be ready for. Yeah, you know, I love what you just said here about you know, those those experiences really being edged in your memory, right? Because like I, I remember when I was, you know, running competitively, I also did it for about eight years or so, right? And like like I looking back, I can literally define my like the entire year basically by how well I ran or by like you know, the yeah, three best sure. performances of the year. So like, you tell yeah. me 2013, I can literally tell you this and this and this. And like, and those are sort of the things that stick out. And I think that's so fascinating, right? That like, you, mm. we often have, I talk to a lot of athletes that have the same thing, right? Like you define an entire year by like these, you know, 
20 minutes of competition, right? That actually like were the time when you really were alive, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because actually in sport, that is how you're judged, you know? So, you know, now in my, my career that I have, or, you know, I have a, have a, have a one-year-old, or a two-year-old, it's just turned two. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm having lots of mem wonderful times, you know, with my little boy, but there's no one or two moments where I say, that was the moment I was an amazing mother, because that's just <laughs> not the way it works. Whereas I look back at my rowing career and I say, right, when I won the World Championships this year, with this race, that was amazing. And it really is, you know, in sport, it does come down to those, you know, those one, one moment per year or a handful of moments per year that you do judge the whole, you know, you do judge your whole career on really and in in my sport in rowing it's a 2000 meter race and depending on the size of the boat that you're in um it could be anything from five and a half minutes to about seven minutes and you know you're talking let's say it's so in the, the quad skull which is what i spent most of my career in it's just over six minute race you think gosh all those hours all that training all that emotion six minutes <laughs> i mean <laughs> we've probably been we've been talking for longer than six minutes already but it, these aren't the six minutes I'm going to define a whole year by. So, um, you know, people who do throwing events, sprinting events, it's seconds. It's, it's, it's even less, seconds. right? <laughs> it is. And, and you think, gosh, so much of, of what you do and how you how much you care is wrapped up in those, those few seconds. But that's the nature of the beast. You know, if you don't like that, stay out of the kitchen. That's, <laughs> that's what you sign up for. You know, if you don't want those one-off moments where everything is asked of you and you are tested, you know, you, you put your iron in the fire, then don't go in sport because you won't get on. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you learned about that drive? Like what actually, you know, pushes people like you and all the other people you've interviewed, like into this, this, this danger zone, as you, you called it, right? Well, like you, you are in that place where you can get hurt. You are in that place where you like put everything on the line and you either win big or you lose big. Mm. I think you've got to be a bit mad to start with. And I mean that, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a really positive way. You've got to be, I don't know, I think of the people that I've, I've met through sport, both, you know, uh, teammates in their own team and people from other sports and other countries. Everyone's just really unique and really individual um, and definitely has a screw loose. Uh, but I think you, you, once you're in it, and I guess this is something that, that came through really strongly in mind games, you know, you learn to love it. Once you're in it, you, you self-justify. You tell yourself, well, this is great. You know, I haven't been out in, had a night out in months. I'm 25 and I haven't drunk alcohol in a year or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'm living this really dis, um, strange life distinct from all my friends. And, uh, you know, I meet someone on a, I go on a date and it just doesn't work because I can't explain my life to them. And, but you self-justify. You say, well, this is great. This is exactly what I want. So you create your own reality. As an athlete, you create your own version of what what is right, what is wrong. I mean, I've heard people say that there's all these areas of overlap between um, elite sports people and and convicted criminals and serial killers because you, <laughs> there's this same process that you normalise what you're doing. What you're doing is so weird and so different. Yeah. <laughs> for those people. You you know, you come up with ways of normalizing it and making it suit you as a person and convincing yourself this is exactly what you want to do. And it isn't really till it's all over. You look back and you say, gosh, that was strange, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but at the time, yeah, you start off with just that you know, love for your sport. You start off with the curiosity. I wonder how good I could be. You know, you start off with probably a, a question mark. I wonder, 
how hard can I push myself today? How actually maybe I want to take the next step and do British trials or take the next step and go to national championships, whatever it is in, in your sport. And then before you know it, you're on the, the treadmill. But you don't, you know, you, and when you get off the treadmill, you're a very different person to how you started because you've trained those mental skills, you've trained your personality. But to start off with, you know, you've got to be an outstanding athlete. You've got to have just that tiny spark of curiosity and want to know what I can do. And that that's enough to set you on your way. Yeah, you know, this this nature of like sacrifice is so interesting to me because like you said, like when you're in this this zone, like you just live such a fundamentally different life from like the way that mm -hmm. the normal person consider quote unquote normal person lives. It's just like people don't understand, right? That like you go to a party and like you leave at 9 p.m. because you need to sleep, right? That you don't drink alcohol, that you don't eat junk food. Like it's just something that is like so far away from like the the way that most people live. So yeah, but I think I think the word you use there is is probably a word that most elite athletes wouldn't use, and that's sacrifice. Yeah. You know, most elite athletes would say, I haven't sacrificed anything. I've yeah, made it a choice. Feel like it, yeah. I've made a, yeah, I've made a positive choice to live this lifestyle. And what do I get in return? I get to represent my country at sport. I mean, mm -hmm. what could be better than that? Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying you have that attitude all the time. Sometimes you do think I am sacrificing. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, you miss you miss weddings of really close friends, and you think this is this isn't fun. But you know, the vast majority of time, you think I'm so privileged. Look what I get to do. There's so many people who try to do this and can't. They're not quite good enough, and I'm so lucky that I am just about good enough to do it. So I think you the the moment you start seeing it as a sacrifice is the moment that you're probably in the wrong job. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I'm so, I'm so curious, right? Because like this, like the like like what you just mentioned, right? It's like the the thing that all makes it worth it, right? It's like getting some kind of end result out of it, right? Like it's it's not necessarily always a a pleasurable yeah. pursuit, but it's like oftentimes when you have that big dream, like that's what like you keep striving for, right? So like for you, for well. I don't know. See, I, I, I'm not sure many people, I'm sure not everyone would agree with you there. I think for a lot of people that it is about the mm. big moment and about, you know, like you say, getting something back. And I think most people probably say it's not. Most people say would say it is about the journey. It's about the effort, the striving, you know, the commitment. It's, it's the things you do along the way rather than necessarily the outcome. But I don't know. I'm just speaking for myself. I'm, I'm not sure. No, for sure. There, there's, a, there's a balance, right? And like people are very different. And I think that's, that's one of the key takeaways. Um, but but sort of the, the question I was I was trying to point at is like, wouldn't you feel looking back if you hadn't won like the world championships, for example, would you have felt like it was all worth it? Gosh, I don't know. It's a, bit of a pretty big question. Um, I don't know. The thing is, I guess in those situations when when I won, you know, when I won some medals, I was good enough, so I felt like I, you know, I achieved my potential. Whereas I think the thing that would keep me up at night now would be if I hadn't achieved my potential. Mm. Um, you know, I, I believe I was good enough to win Olympic gold. I didn't quite manage it. I came away with the silver, but, you know, so that is a source of huge, huge frustration for me. But I kind of look back and I say, yeah, but I won lots of other races. So overall, I think I achieved my potential. Whereas if I'd perhaps, you know, never quite been at that standard and I come away with just a few fifth place finishes. But if that's where I felt was reflective of my ability, because I think as an athlete, the only thing you want to do is do your best. Yeah. You know, that's all you want to do. You just want to go to bed at night and say, did everything I could. I didn't leave a single stone unturned. I think the moment you start having regrets and, and I wish, I wish, I wish, wish things could have been different, you know, the times that you know you screw up and you know you've got no one to blame but yourself. 
<laughs> and you know, you meet a heck of a lot of athletes who are really bitter and really wound up about something that happened a decade ago because they, you know, they never quite, they felt like they never quite achieved their potential and they, you know, they can't really quite move on from that. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, like looking back even for me, I realized that like the, the things that I regret most is like the times when I didn't like push myself to like the maximum, right? It's like, I yeah. remember those races where like I, I just knew there was more potential, but I didn't like somehow manage to get it out of myself that day. So it wasn't like I lost that race because I was not talented enough. I lost that race because I just didn't give them all. And those are really mm. the things I found that, that yeah. tend to bug you for a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's the things where you've got no one to blame but yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a, I mean, particularly in a team sport like rowing, there's a lot of people involved. And I'm not saying you blame other people, but you're aware you're part of a team effort. Your input is a small part of the total. Um, the coach has a really dominant role in rowing. So there's a lot of other things going on. Whereas there are occasions when you know you can, you know, there's nowhere to look but yourself. You're the one who made that mistake. You know, you're the one who let yourself down, and those are the worst moments. <laughs> now, you mentioned before that that athletes <laughs> to to do this at such a high level have to be in a certain way, kind of mad. And I think <laughs> that that and you you pointed to some really fascinating research about um, some of those painkillers that are released in our bodies that actually make us feel good rather than bad after yeah. practice. So, can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, pain is something that I I was really interested in. Um, because I feel like pain is such a big barrier in all endurance sports. I don't just mean in, in rowing, in all endurance sports, you have to push yourself physically. I mean, I'm a big cycling fan and, and until recently I, I cycle quite a lot. And you know, what you put yourself through going up a big hill or you watch professional cyclists in the Tour de France and they are absolutely killing themselves going up these, you know, these 20K climbs in the Alps. And it really, really hurts. Yeah. And I think it hurts the more, the more, the more trained you are. So if I cycle up a massive hill now, it wouldn't hurt that much because I couldn't physically push myself because, you know, I have no fitness because I'm very pregnant. Um, <laughs> whereas when I was a full-time athlete for our big sessions, I could really push myself, you know, to vomiting, you know, close to passing out. And, and it's horrible. It is a horrible, <laughs> horrible thing to put it on. And I'm sure everyone who does, endurance sports listen to this will be nodding their head at this point and saying yeah I, I totally get it exercise induced pain lactic acid that feeling of blood at the back of your throat it's a horrible feeling and and it, I guess it, it really interested me because I also almost also felt that it's not something that's ever really addressed in psychology you know psychologists just seem to assume that you can do it you can push yourself through pain whereas actually it's such a big barrier before a race you are that's the, kind of the main thing you're thinking about is is going to hurt so much <laughs> so i suppose it, it interested me enough that when i sat down to write, write the book i thought i want to find out more about exercise induced pain so i kind of asked a few contacts in the medical world and was put in touch with a, a professor of pain at <laughs> imperial college london which is just the best um the best job title ever and as it happened he has an interest in rowing which was which was perfect um, so I went and, and chatted to him about pain and he sort of said, you know, we don't really understand pain as much as we'd like to, because how can you recreate it in a laboratory? You know, you can't bring someone in it and hurt them and then ask them questions about it. Yeah, you can't like yeah. shock them constantly. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, that's been done in the past. Yeah. But, you know, it's not, it's not ideal. Um, people wouldn't do it. And ethically, you, you couldn't do it as well as a researcher. So he said exercise induced pain is, is, is an area that's really hard to 
to research, but he said, we know a bit about the mechanism of pain killing um, processes. And essentially it's a byproduct of, sorry, a byproduct of, of the pain, natural painkillers in your body is, is, is a positive feeling. You know, people say you get the endorphin response, but endorphins is a byproduct of, of your natural painkillers. Um, so essentially pain and pleasure <laughs> are confused in sport. You know, you feel good after you've inflicted your pain, the pain on yourself, which is why it was always self-perpetuating. And, and the other thing he's, he said is that, you know, pain is, is, is highly, um, what's the word, highly psychological. I mean, he used the example of people who get their, their foot shot off on the battlefield, yet they can still run to safety. And the second they're, you know, back in camp or behind a wall or whatever, they collapse to the floor in, you know, unbelievable pain and they, they can't walk from then on. But for that moment, they, they could do it. And he said, clearly, our brains have a huge impact in how we process pain. And he sort of said there's this theory called the gate theory, which is that, you know, pain happens somewhere in your body. So in sport, it'll be lactic acid in your, in your leg muscles and rowing. It comes up your spinal column to your brain and your brain then decides what to do with it. So essentially, you can train your ability to, to not listen to those signals, as it were. Well, not not listen to them, but you, you know, you can almost train your ability to turn them down. So you can turn down the pain feeling, which I guess chimed with my experience because I felt that processing exercise-induced pain was definitely something I got better at through my career. And also looking around the rowing team, there were certainly people who were much better than others at putting themselves in, you know, in the pain locker. Um, and I guess that always really interested me. So how can you be better than me at just this basic biological response? But it turns out it's not biological. There is a psychological aspect to it. Um, and that, well, it was quite interesting, actually, because then he started talking about, you know, the, the pain of having a baby, which is obviously something that a lot of women go through. And at that point, I was pregnant with my first child. <laughs> and I said, I said, I don't really want to talk about this right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't want to hear it. <laughs> I've got all this ahead of me. I don't want to talk about childbirth pain. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was just really interesting. And I guess it's another thing I really wish I'd known when I was still, still rowing. Yeah, for sure. I love that. In fact, in, in running well, sometimes that there's this phrase that says like, oh, this hurts so good, right? Like, Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's not, you know, and of course you, you can try and convince yourself and you can find a way of, of dealing with it and everyone will find their own way of dealing with it, whatever it is. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it ever gets enjoyable. Okay, I'm going to backtrack. There's a few total nutters out there who probably love that feeling of mm. really hurting themselves doing sport. But I think for most people, it's just a means to an end. It's not, it's not a nice end in itself. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what were some of those strategies <laughs> or techniques that you used um, to, to really win this battle with, with fatigue and pain? With pain? Well, I guess it was something that, because my career was, was about nine years, so it took in two Olympic, full Olympic cycles. So I, I very much divide my career into two, and I was, I was quite a different person between the two and quite a different athlete, because you, know, you just learn so much from going to one Olympic Games. You know, it opens your eyes to everything about sport. So I think the first four years, I just took it for granted that, you know, growing was going to really hurt, training was going to hurt, and you just got on with it. And then the second four years, I... I guess I thought, well, how can I get better at maximising my performance in, in this way? So I decided to really focus on it as an end in itself. You know, how close can I get to collapse? And just ask those questions of myself. You know, physically, how hard can I push myself? And always treat it as a kind of an academic question. 
rather than, oh, this is just a byproduct product of training, but actually, hey, it's gonna really hurt. Let's see how good we can get at just relish, well, not relishing it, but getting as close to that red line as possible. Um, which again, I think it probably objectified things for me and made it easier to cope with. Yeah, for sure, absolutely love that. Now, one thing that is absolutely devastating for athletes is, is self-doubt. It can oftentimes be very crippling for people. And now you yeah. have your own story of overcoming that certain career. So can you share that story with us? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, people talk about imposter syndrome and I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone in the world wouldn't suffer from imposter syndrome at times, particularly in international sport where it's, it's different to most professions in that it's public. So you as a sporty kid would have grown up watching the Olympic Games, watching the World Athletics Championship, watching the Football World Cup, whatever it is. So you've seen other people on telly in the public eye do what you're now doing. So, you know, you're literally putting yourselves in the, in the, you know, the, the shoes of your heroes. So I think, I think in sport, it's easier to feel like an imposter because perhaps in other professions, other jobs, you haven't necessarily, you know, if it's not public, you haven't necessarily seen anyone else do it. So you're kind of doing it for the first time. Whereas in sport, you've watched all these amazing athletes come before you and suddenly you're the one following them. And you think, hang on a sec, I'm just some little kid from Cornwall what am I doing competing for Great Britain um, and I suppose I think particularly I think women struggle with that more than men as well I think women have less innate self-confidence um, they can take a bit more a bit more evidence to persuade them that they are at the right standard on the right ballpark and it's certainly in the right job um, and, and for me it was probably quite a few years where and it's not something I really addressed but I just you know, I was doing my thing and it wasn't until um, it was my second senior world championships and my teammate and I were in a two person boat. We came fourth by tiny margin. And after that, I mean, it was we both went through some pretty big soul searching because we should certainly have been on the podium. We could certainly have won a bronze or a silver in that race, not a gold, but certainly bronze or silver. And after that race, we asked ourselves lots of questions, you know, what went wrong? Why didn't we go faster? Why didn't we really have a great relationship? Why didn't we get on with our coach? You know, why did we have such a yo-yo season where we had some amazing races and some terrible performances? But I think one of the questions I asked myself was, well, did you sit on that start line actually believing you could be on the podium at the end of the race? And I thought to myself, no, not at all. So then my next question was, well, why not? And also, is that important? And I thought, well, what's the point? in doing this job, training this hard, sacrificing or not sacrificing, committing my whole life to my sport, if I don't actually think I'm that good at it. And to me, I then thought, well, if I don't believe that I can be an athlete on the podium, why am I putting myself through this six hours a day, six days a week, 11 months a year? This is pointless. This is like, yeah. I don't know, going and trying to do your driving test without thinking you're, you can drive, yeah. you know? So then I thought, well, okay, what do I do? And I just figured all this stuff out for myself. I didn't, you know, I didn't go and see our psychologist at that point, although obviously I, I wish I had. And I really just visualized myself just by stepping off the edge of a cliff and thinking, there isn't any evidence that I'm good enough to win. There's no, you know, it's not written in the stars. I'm just gonna have to start believing. And I guess it's probably, 
you know, people who believe in all the kind of rubbish fake news you read on the internet, they just start believing in it. And then you convince yourself, you know, it's um, the ultimate conspiracy theory. You always decide you agree with the theory and then you convince yourself of the reality around you to fit the theory. Whereas clearly in, you know, in science, you start off with the evidence and then you arrive at the theory. But I, I wended it the other way around because I thought I'm only going to get one chance at this. I'm not going to be able to come back and redo it all. You know, if I don't go, I'm not going to be able to rewind the clock to be 22 again and have another go at sports. So I thought, right, let's just shut my eyes, step off the cliff and start telling myself that I can be a world champion next year. And I wow. did. Mm. And I'm not saying it was, it was an overnight thing. I didn't suddenly flick a switch and say, yep, you know, September 2007, I'm going to be a world champion. But gradually over the next few months, I started telling myself it, you know, trying to fit the evidence around me to believe, make myself believe this, um, you know, try to tra train with the assurance of it. And essentially, I just imagined the parallel universe where this had already happened, this had already played out. I'd been to the World Championships, I'd won the gold medal, and here I was doing the season again. And eventually, you know, I convinced myself of my own hype, as they say. Um, and by the time, you know, we got to the business end of the season, I genuinely did think, yeah, I can do this. I can absolutely win the World Championships. And obviously the proscript of the story is that I did win the World Championships, but, and I don't think I could have without having that innate belief. Um, I mean, clearly it could have gone a different way and I couldn't have done it, but I like to think I, I, I would have still believed that I, I could do it. You know, I believe that theoretically, if everything goes my way, it is possible for me to win the World Championships. Whereas until up until that point, I'd never thought that. I think, I'd think, even if I have the race of my life, it's still not quite there. So I, I guess and it was those those two words that I, I kept using, good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough to do it, I'm good enough to be here, I'm good enough to win this medal. Wow, you know, I love this so much. So, so what did that process look like for you? Was it affirmations? Was it sort of, you know, writing things down? Was it just constant reminding yourself of I'm good enough, I can do this? What did that look like for you? Well, I think it's all sorts. And I suppose that was also what I was trying to examine in mind games is, um, is how people do that, what evidence do they use, what cues do they give themselves, who do, what people do they surround them by themselves with, who do they speak to, do you read books, do you listen to podcasts, whatever it is, you've got to set yourself up an environment where you've got all these, these bombarded with all this noise telling you the right things you need to hear. And if you, you aren't hearing the right noises, then you know, change the channel so you are, because you only get one chance in that sport. You, you can't go back and do it again. I mean, yeah, you might go to another Olympics, but the window for your performance is so tiny. I and mean, most people do it for five, 10 years. It's such a small amount of time. And I thought there's no point spending those five, 10 years not quite believing. You know, I have to believe. That has to be the absolute core. It has to be if you strip away everything about me, you'll be left with just, you know, in my heart person who believes they're good enough to be a world champion and I, th I felt like that had to be the foundation of everything I did so yeah it was self-talk it was trying to take the evidence around me it was also telling people you know I remember sitting down with my coach and saying I'm going to be a world champion next year and I think he was quite surprised because I don't think wow. he necessarily believed it but he said oh right okay right you know and, and, I, and for me kind of externalizing it and, and and putting it out there and, and saying it to somebody else, that, that just made it real. Yeah, do you feel like that just added another layer of sort of accountability and having like sort of putting that pressure? For sure. 
Yeah, and he and it clearly stuck in his mind because he did bring it up a few times throughout the season. Mm. You know, if I was, I was having a wobble or things weren't going to plan, he said to me, Annie, you said you were going to be a world champion. Do you still believe that? And I'd say, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. Mm. And he'd say, right, great. And that was it. You know, it's just like a mm. little kind of pat on the shoulder. So just, But yeah, this was, you know, this was the, the reality that I created for myself. Was it based in fact? No. But that was the reality that I needed to believe. Yeah, you know, I love this so much, this, this idea of belief, right? Because only when you truly believe that, like, you can achieve that thing, are you going to actually expand the effort towards it, right? For sure. And, and I think a lot of people, they need more, uh, they need more evidence. So I think a lot of athletes will need more either results, time, scores, PBs, or they'll need other people to tell them, you know, you can do this, you can do this. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm quite an introvert, so I'm, you know, pretty self um what's the word self-referencing and that's the way I operate and that's how well, that's how my mind works so I knew that I needed to start with me start with my own kind of version of myself and then build on that yeah I love that now you mentioned this this before this this idea then you know you have about five to ten years really as a professional athlete and in that time you have maybe two olympic cycles you have maybe you know five whatever how many champ yeah. world championships how do you make sure that, you know, in those moments, and you mentioned before, it takes about, you know, six minutes for you to perform this race. How do you make sure that when it's, you know, when it's that time of the year, when you've got these six minutes and they literally determine whether this year was successful or not, how do you show up as your best and really perform to the maximum of your ability there? Well, I think you build up to it the same way you build up your training. I mean, 12 months out from the World Championships, are you in a position to race a flat out 2000 meter race? You know, against six other crews, no, not at all. You're not nowhere near that level of, 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 of ability and not ability, that level of performance. In the same way, 12 months out, are you ready to put yourself in that pressure cooker? No, definitely not. But you know, you build up to it over the months, it gets closer, and actually you often find that a month out you'll still be thinking, God, I'm so not ready for this. There's so much more I need to do. And then a week before the, the event, you'll be thinking, actually, yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, let's let's go for it. So I think you, you accept that preparing for something physically doesn't happen overnight in the same way praying something mentally doesn't happen overnight. And you almost just let your, you know, let your body, let your mind develop and change and, and, and build itself up. So that by the time you get to that start line, you're sat there, you know, actually you feel pretty happy. You feel pretty satisfied. Yeah, for sure. Love that. Now, one thing that, that was so fascinating about, about your book is like the, the sort of narrative that people thread through their career. And you talked about this before with the self-referencing, right? But like what you found actually is like the background almost doesn't matter, right? Like the, you know, where people come from, rich, poor, this neighborhood, that neighborhood. Like it's really the narrative that people create around their background, around their story. Yeah. So yeah, how sure. can people then develop a, a more empowering sort of narrative around their life that actually helps them really go for it? I think so much of it, is about figuring out what works for you. You know, the way that I went about my mental skills in sport, we're totally different to anyone else. And that, that's the reality of humans. We're, we're all unique. There's whatever, six billion of us on the planet. Every single one of us is different. So I would say start with, start with you. Who are you? What excites you? What terrifies you? What do you know you're good at? What don't you know you're good at? What aren't you very good at? And almost just hold a mirror up to your personality and say, okay, what's going on here? What do we need to do? 
and just get to know yourself inside out in the same way that I don't know you meet a new partner you know husband girlfriend boyfriend wife and you get to know them you get to know them really well so just make sure you get to know yourself and it's that self-awareness piece that when I was researching mind games that came across so strongly you know, every single athlete had been through that process of self-examination self-awareness so they knew how they operated they knew how they ticked you know they knew that I don't know let's take it even to the morning of your Olympic finals some people will sit there headphones on you know rage against the machine playing hard house whatever it is you know Usain Bolt famously goes out and gets chicken nuggets before he races <laughs> you know the big races so everyone will go about it in a different way you know some people will chat to everyone else some people will be quite um uh, quite solitary everyone has a different way of building themselves up for the big moment so just broaden that out and have that approach to what you're doing in life you know your approach to your work your family your exercise you know that work-life balance it'll work differently for everyone and there's nothing wrong with that just make sure the way you're doing things works for you because all of us all of us are different you know you'll probably do it in a different way to your partner to your spouse even um and i think that's part of the excitement of life is we all are we all are so unique yeah, I love that piece of self-awareness. I think that's so crucial. And I think it, it really comes from the book, right? That like there's so many different approaches to how you can do it, quote unquote, right. There's no yeah, one single sure. thing. It's just like, no way. no way. Yeah, for sure. Now, if you could, you know, go back in time to your you know, 22 year old self starting out, what would be like a piece of advice that you would give to yourself and maybe, you know, other athletes starting out their careers right now? that you had to learn sort of throughout that career? Definitely, it would be that it's okay to fail. Failing at sport doesn't mean you are a failure. It just means you weren't very good at that sport <laughs> that day. And the, the British rowing team, when I was on I mean, it's changed a heck of a lot in the last eight years. There's been quite a lot of personnel change. Personnel, personnel um, have, have moved on, new people have come in. But certainly when I was there, the attitude was very much, if you lose, you are a complete loser. If you wow. haven't won Olympic medals, you know, don't bother showing your face. And everything was a kind of organized around if you're successful, you're the best people here. Um, and I think I very much got swept into that. And I think if I was going back, I'd say to myself, just ignore that all. You know, you're doing this to have fun and, and to achieve things and, and push yourself and enjoy it. And if you fail, it's, it's fine. It really doesn't reflect on you as a person. Um, and I think it wasn't until I retired, really, that I, that I realized that. Yeah. Priscilla, this already leads me to my next question, because one question I ask every single one of my guests is their favorite failure. So do you, you know, throughout your career, have a favorite failure that laid on and really pushed you to become a better version of yourself? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I divide all my, you know, or the, the, the times I messed up or the times I, I underperformed. I guess I'm divide them into two. There was there was some I really did learn from. And like I described earlier, the time we came forth, it was just such a huge, um, hugely revealing moment for me because it really did make me think. And I honestly think if we'd, you know, if we'd been a tenth of a second faster and won a bronze medal, I probably wouldn't have gone on to the success I did because it was, it really did lift the, you know, lift the wall from my eyes and enable me to understand all the things I'd done wrong. That I was doing wrong, but I also think there's other times I've failed. That actually, there's there's nothing I can learn. There's no positive to take. 
mm. you know it was really depressing and it really upset me and you know and it's it's not being self-pitying it's just sometimes bad stuff happens and it's you can't find a positive and it just it is what it is you just take it on the chin and, and move on um and i think almost I've, i spent too much I, I spent too much time in the past trying to find you know the, the thing about it that, that spurred me on to a, to you know to get better and, and a lot of the time there isn't one a lot of the time you put everything into it you do everything right and you're just not quite good enough is there a positive in that not really it's a bit depressing but like i said you know mm -hmm. that's just that is sport you know you put yourself out there so i think there's some failures you can learn from and some failures you just say it wasn't my day i didn't enjoy that it wasn't very nice let's crack on yeah for sure, and I think this process of like learning to move on, right? Even from those devastating failures that maybe you can't even learn anything about, right? It's just like it sucked today, but hey, better luck, you know, next time, next week, next, next race. I think is so important. Yeah, and sometimes you don't get a next time. Sometimes that's it; your career's over, and you think, well, am I going to beat myself up about that? No, I'm just going to say that was part of the kaleidoscope of life, and I'm sure there's lots of other things I'll do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Now, if you could give our listeners just one challenge, one action step to take away from this today, what would that be? I think spend a bit of time. I mean, life is really strange at the moment with COVID-19. You know, life is definitely not normal. And in some ways, we've, we've all got a bit more thinking time on our hands. We certainly won't necessarily all have time on our hands if we're homeschooling children, but we've got time to think. And just have have that 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 conversation with yourself. You know, hold up that mirror to your, your personality and say, "Well, who am I? What am I good at? What makes me happy? What environment do I need to create around me that gives me all the right messages and puts me in a really happy place?" Because it'll be different for everyone. And actually, you know, life isn't necessarily about trying to do the next big, bigger, better thing. Sometimes life is just about you know setting up a life that works for you and makes you really happy day to day. So have a bit of time to think about that. And like I said, look in the mirror and see what you see. Love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Annie Vernon GB. I'm on Instagram at the same, uh, same handle. And you can get a copy of my book, Mind Games, in all the usual places, Waterstones, Amazon, um, Bloomsbury, the publishers, you can get it from Bloomsbury. The paperback is coming out in July this year, and the hardback came out last year. So same book, uh, different coloured covers. <laughs> Perfect. Now, what does it mean for you to max out your life? I think it means, maxing out my life means, I guess, a bit of what I've already said, just finding the right kind of life that suits you. I mean, my life now is totally different to when I was an athlete. Um, does it make me happier? You can't really compare the two. It's totally different. You know, my pace of life has changed. My priorities have changed. How I judge myself has changed. So I would say maxing out your life is really finding the right kind of life that works for you and living that to the max. But don't try and don't try and live somebody else's version of, of what's great and what's amazing.